welcome to the 2021 International E-Conference on the Historical Jesus. Now, today's theme, with the exception of a couple of presentations, is all about a discussion on what's known as Jesus mythicism. My name is Dr. Darren Slade, and I'm the president of the Global Center for Religious Research, which is hosting this year's academic conference. And one of the great things about GCRR is that you're being joined by students and scholars and specialists from all over the world, right from the comfort and safety of your own home. I want to remind everybody that there is a downloadable PDF file that was created specially for you and this conference uh, by the Scholars Choice Organization. So four separate book publishers, including Baker Academic and SBL Press, have given each of you a special discount code up to 40% off to use on books related to the historical Jesus. So all you have to do is go back to the GCRR website, go back to the historical Jesus event webpage and click on the Scholar's Choice logo that's near the top of that webpage. And you'll be able to download the PDF. And the last thing I want to talk about is the Global Center for Religious Research has established the most comprehensive international research group to study the causes, manifestations, and treatment options for those suffering from religious trauma. The GCRR has built a team of approximately 30 licensed psychiatrists, therapists, sociologists, university researchers, religion scholars, and PhD candidates from all over the world, most of whom specialize in the field of trauma research. Uh, but we we have a really big problem. See, in order for victims of religious trauma to receive help, we need to arrive at a place in our culture where religious trauma is accepted as a real mental health condition. And unfortunately, the academic study of religious trauma remains in its infancy when compared to other studies in mental health. That means there are no exhaustive empirical studies to support uh, what we've all experienced in the tens of thousands, that religious trauma exists and is a chronic problem in many religious traditions. So as it stands, really only anecdotal case studies have been published, but nothing substantially empirical. And GCRR intends to correct this gap of knowledge by offering an interdisciplinary and scientific examination of religious trauma. And we're hoping to get your help and supporting this project. We've set up a GoFundMe page in order to crowdsource the world's very first comprehensive sociological study on those traumatized by religion in order to help set the stage, the foundational data from which other researchers and counselors can build on in order to get people who suffer from trauma the help that they need. The reason we've set up a GoFundMe is because unfortunately all federal funding to a mental health research has come to a screeching halt. And so that's why we've turned to the, to, uh, the public for help. All you have to do is go to GoFundMe.com and search the phrase religious trauma sociological study, or you can click on the link that I'll put in the chat box here shortly. And with that said, I would like to introduce you to my very good friend and our next presenter, Tim Freak, and allow me to share my screen so I can present him properly. So Timothy Freak is going to be talking today on the Jesus parable. Now, this is a man that doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, as many of you know, Timothy Freak is an English philosopher and author of 35 books uh, translated into 15 different languages. In fact, uh, The Jesus Mysteries, where he, which he co-authored with uh, Peter Gandy and was published in 1999, was a top 10 bestseller in the UK Sunday Times. It was Book of the Year in the UK Daily Telegraph and the official Amazon 
Amazon surprise bestseller. Timothy is one of the 100 most spiritually influential living people on the 2021 list in Watkins Magazine and is the winner of Author of the Year 2020 in Kindred Spirit Magazine. So a number of his books can be found at his personal website, which is www.timfreak.com. That's spelled T-I-M-F-R-E. E-K-E.com. And some of those books include The Jesus Mysteries, uh, Jesus and the Goddess, The Secret Teachings of the Original Christians, The Laughing Jesus, Religious Lies and Gnostic Wisdom, and The Gospel of the Second Coming. Jesus is, come, is back, and this time he's funny. So with that said, I will turn it over to you. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for being here. You have the floor, sir. Thank you, Darren. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Whatever time of day it is for you, wherever you are, it's lovely to see your faces. So the Jesus Mysteries, um, with the subtitle, Was the Original Jesus a Pagan God? I wrote that and published that in 99, like Darren said, with my dear friend and colleague, Peter Gandhi. And when we did that, um, we felt very lonely because we didn't know anyone who was thinking about these ideas at all. We found a few eventually, like the great George Wells, for instance, who was doing it before us and so forth. And it goes back and back and back. Uh, but we didn't know anything about that. And, the, and in, main, in the mainstream culture, uh, there was nothing really that we could find. And it's very, um, it's kind of exciting to be here at a conference 20 something years later uh, with all of these different speakers. Uh, many of whom are exploring uh, different versions of the sort of insights that when we first had them, it, to be honest with you, felt utterly outrageous. I mean, it felt like, can you even think these thoughts? I think the chapter actually in the book, and one of the first chapters, as I remember, is called The Unthinkable Thought, the thought that, that, that we completely misunderstood the history of the most influential religion, I'm guessing, in the whole of history, certainly one of them. Um, but that's the conclusion we came to. So I want to start really this presentation with a confession to you, so we're all straight with each other right from the start, um, which is uh, I have moved on from my studies in this area quite some time ago, and I haven't kept up with all of the developments and all of these amazing people you've got speaking and, and all of the books that have come out since, uh, because I felt other things were calling me, and I was kind of done with Jesus, um, and we'd done the work we needed to do. So I, I, I can't comment on any of that much, really. Um, and what I said when Darren invited me, I thought it was such a great conference. I love the organization. I wanted to support what they were doing. Um, and I said, well, look, I can speak about the intensive research we did 20-something years ago and why it seems so compelling. And uh, that's what I'm going to do. And hopefully we'll have a chance to chat as well. And you can ask me what I, whatever you, whatever the hell you want, to be honest, anything. Um, let's, let's let, you know, let this is the whole point of getting together. And it's obviously we can do it now online is to ask questions and search, search for answers. So I'm going to do, I'm going to usually as those of you who know me, I'm, I'm relentlessly ambitious, and so I'm going to cover far too much, far too quickly, but that's what I want to try and do. Uh, so I'm going to talk about a little bit of history, some philosophy, and then I'm going to talk about mythology. And 
I called this presentation, I thought afterwards, I should have called it the Jesus Mysteries, because that's the thing that people know me for, but I'm not sensible enough to do that. So I, I called it the Jesus Parable. And I did that because over the years, um, it's felt a great way to introduce the ideas that I'm exploring is to say this. If I was coming to this conference and I said to you, look, look, you know, we, we've been doing this immense amount of research and I, I've got something to um, share with you. It was a bit shocking, uh, which is that, um, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, you know, that story that you've been told since you were a little at school. There is no Good Samaritan. There just isn't. It's just, it's just made up. There, there is no Good Samaritan. It didn't happen. I know, I know, it looks like it did. And you've been told it, but it didn't happen. Now, if I did that, and when I have done that, everyone goes, well, obviously there's no Good Samaritan. <laughs> it, it's, it's a parable, for heaven's sake. It's a teaching story. Of course there's no Good Samaritan. Don't be daft. No one thinks there's a Good Samaritan. Not even Christian fundamentalists think there really was a Good Samaritan, necessarily. It's a teaching story. The point is, do you understand the lesson of the story? So the essential message in the Jesus Mysteries and that I want to share with you today is that the whole of the gospel story is a parable. The whole thing's a parable. And to look for a real Jesus is as crazy as looking for a real Good Samaritan, because you completely, or if we do that, we completely missed the point. And to be able to get there, um, you, we need to put ourselves, and this is not an easy thing to do, I don't think, really isn't. We need to put ourselves as best we can back into the ancient mindset 2,000 years ago and more. And to try and understand how they were thinking and how they thought they, they saw these things that we call myths. Because when I say something's a myth, people in the modern world often think that means I'm saying it's not true. Because we've differentiated the idea of history and mythology into two distinct categories, which in the ancient world is just not the case. So we need to, under, we need to think in a different way if we're going to see what this is that we've inherited and how we've come to misunderstand its nature and to indeed appreciate its true nature, which I think is, is actually quite beautiful in, in, in many respects. So for us, it started, and I'm sure this is, there's lots of speakers who are going to cover this ground, so I'm not going to go into it in, in, in a huge amount of detail. <clears throat> it's quite well known now that there are, there are, these incredible similarities between myths in the pagan tradition, in all of these different, what were called mystery religions or mystery schools, and, and these little cults, but I don't mean cults in a negative sense, I mean in the literal sense that was used in the ancient world, the, these ancient uh, religions uh, were taken very seriously by some of the greatest minds of their time. The great philosophers were often initiates in these mystery religions. And so we should, we should understand they had real depth to them. And what you find is that they, they, at their center, there are various myths. 
in particular, ones that concern a dying and resurrecting God-man or a son of God, who goes by all sorts of different names in all of these different cultures around the Mediterranean. Uh, Adonis, Attis, Serapis, Osiris, going back to ancient Egypt, Dionysus in Greece, and so forth. When we started coming across these um, similarities, it, it felt like, well, this, this has to be with the Jesus story. How can that be explained? And just to give you a taste of them, I, I want to, I'm sure you know them. The, the, the key one is the death and resurrection uh, in various ways, um, uh, sometimes through death through crucifixion. Uh, we have a picture on, I can probably show it to you if you don't know it. There's a picture on the front cover of our book, The Jesus Mysteries, which shows a figure on a cross. Uh, it, this is an amulet. This is an artist's reconstruction, actually, of an amulet that was lost in Berlin in the war. Uh, we don't know its date. It doesn't prove anything. Um, but it's interesting that you've got a figure who isn't Jesus um, on a cross. Uh, I just want to say that actually generally as we go into this, none of these similarities, of which there are a huge number, you can look at the work in the Jesus Mysteries to see that, not, no single one of them proves anything. And, and things like the amulet, you know, could it be later, it could be earlier, there could be all sorts of reasons for it. For me, the thing which, is, which, which convinces me by, of what I'm going to share with you is how it all fits together. And any one piece could be mistaken, and I'm sure plenty of people have pointed out mistakes that we made, I'm sure we did. But it's how things fit together that gives something real strength as a theory, I believe. So the Jesus Mysteries thesis, as we called it, is about how all of this holds together. So you've got a God-man, he dies, he resurrects, he's born of a virgin, sometimes in a cave. Um, he has 12 disciples, he brings a new religion, he turns water into wine at a wedding, um, and right up to the death and resurrection. The, 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 you celebrate, his, his, uh, celebrate him by drinking wine and eating bread, and so on. So... Once you see these, and, and it's worth pointing out, right, as well, um, this is not just, this is unfamiliar to us today, but these similarities between the Jesus story and the pagan mythology was not obviously unfamiliar to the ancients. So you've got early Christian church fathers, as they're called, like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, who, who are quite aware of the similarities between the Jesus story and these ancient pagan myths. In fact, they make a point of it. They defend Christianity by saying, look, it's, it's, we're telling the same stories, which is interesting. And then you get this idea that somehow when they want to make it, uh, they, they want to historicize it, that the, 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 the big thing is that now the story has been made real. It has actually happened. The story has actually happened. But the fact that the similarities were, were, were acknowledged right, very early on, because they're obvious. So once you see that, I think there's two rational options. And like most people, we took the first option, which is obviously there must be an historical man because that's too big a thought to think that he didn't exist. And over the top of him is laid all this mythology. You know, like he wasn't really born on Christmas Day. That's a you know, solstice event. And that's been laid on top of him later or died at Easter, all of that. That's all, you know like churches get built on top of ancient pagan temples. It's just been laid on top. That's the first option. And it's a perfectly viable option, but I think it's wrong. And I think it's wrong because of two things. 
One is I don't think there's any substantial evidence at all for an historical man. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. If there was an historical man, he was, you know, he wasn't very big historical figure when he lived, and it would be no surprise that there was nothing left. Uh, but what we do have is faith documents. The Gospels are, are, are mythological faith documents. They, they're not historical documents. I don't think there's many scholars who think that they were anything else. Um, the stories are, have obviously been altered and changed over time. Um, it's now well known that in, of the four that we have in the New Testament, three of them are basically the same one in different versions. Um, all of which points to, all of which is, is, is no proof for a historical man. And where there is proof, like um, the quote in the, the Jewish historian Josephus, which is wheeled out on a regular basis as, look, um, I think it's such a crude forgery that what it speaks to is actually the lack of evidence that was being found in later centuries. And uh, so they were, so that somebody had to insert something to save the blushes of, of the church. So there's two things there. One is, look, this story, now, now just to be clear, uh, again, you, I'm, I don't want to waste your time with things that most people here already know, but it's not like the story of Dionysus or something is the same as the story of Jesus. There is no myth which is the same as the Jesus myth. It's more that they share the same motifs. And the way that I think about this is to think about modern science fiction. You know, if you go and see Star Wars and you know your science fiction, you could probably piece together, oh, he's taken that from there, or the Matrix or something. Oh, that's come from there. That's a twist on that. And they created something new. And, and we go, that's great. It's, it's something new and we love it. I think we need to see human creativity in the same sort of way. But in the ancient world, they're doing it with these, with these myths so that it's not like they're stealing. It's not like some sort of bad sort of plagiarism. And it's not like they're just copying. It's a creative process, which is bringing together motifs. And in the Jesus story, as we'll see in a minute, not just motifs from the pagan world, but also from the Jewish world as well. And integrating it into what turned out to be a fabulous and incredibly in influential story with a real uh, new twist to it, which is why it's still, we're still talking about it. Although I do often think it's a quirk of fate in a way, perhaps, that if... Constantine's mother had not been a Christian, but been a Mithraic fo follower of Mithras, we might all be here going, do you think there was a real Mithras? <laughs> but none of us even think that for a moment um, uh, because we've come through a different, different history. So that's the first reason. Um, uh, and the, the first two things, there's, there's similarities with pagan myths, no evidence for an historical man, and then I think the really important element for me is the existence of the Gnostic Christians. So the Gnostic Christians, you, you, there was no Christians that called themselves Gnostics. This is all retrospected onto them, a vast, diverse group of different Christian cults. And to differentiate them, I think of them as Gnostics. And then there's this other version of Christianity, which I call literalists. And that's the literalists who are going, this is history. Jesus really came, he lived out this miraculous story, he really resurrected from the dead, and if you believe in that, then heaven awaits for you. And if you don't, then look out. You're going to be tortured forever by a God of love. 
Now, what I see with the Gnostics is something different. We, we've inherited a view of the Gnostics that come from the Roman church, which pretty much obliterated the Gnostics and continued to do that over the centuries. They were still doing it with the Cathars and the Bogomils, and it, 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 it's a bloody history. But the winner's white history, of course, and it doesn't mean that they're telling the truth. So the thesis that um, we're exploring is, what if the Gnostics are not this uh, kind of sect that the, the Roman church has painted them to be, this wayward, not this sect that kind of lost the way and went pagan. What if it's the other way around? What if the Gnostics are the original Christians? And it's the literalists who are the heretics later. And I think all the evidence points strongly in that direction because there's just so many Gnostic groups. I mean, we have Tertullian again saying that the followers of Marcion, one of the Gnostic teachers, fill the whole universe. That's a lot. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what he means by that, but it's obviously he thinks there's a lot. Or Polycarp, the uh, epistle of Polycarp, that says the great majority of Christians follow the Gnostic belief, and this is the key Gnostic belief, that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Oh, so here's a group of Christians who fill the whole universe and the great majority of them do not believe that Jesus existed in the flesh. We also know that figures like Simon Magus are very early. So the possibility is here, oh, these are the actual Christians, and they know it's a myth because they've created it as a myth. Whole diverse groups of them in all sorts of different, you know, it's a bit like today in the New Age or something. You know, some are aesthetics and living in the desert. Others are practicing free love and proto-communism. You know, some are clearly Pythagoreans. It's all going on, I think. All sorts of different things are going on. That seems un unlikely if there's one man at st who started it all. So I suggest that's not the case. Let me share with you how it may have come about, which is, well, firstly, I don't think it's anything to do with it happening in Judea. I think the most likely place for all of this is in Alexandria, where there's a very large Jewish population. They're integrated into the Hellenic world. They're all speaking Greek. All of the Gospels are written in Greek. By the way, in case you don't know, there aren't just four. There are lots and when you look at all these other Gospels, suddenly these look quite different. It's only by isolating these four that they look like history. Once you put them into the other, to the pot with everything else, you're clearly dealing with mythology. <clears throat> so I think probably Alexandra is the place. You've got a group like the Therapeuti living outside Alexandria. <clears throat> Philo Judaeus, Philo the Jew, tells us about them. He's a Jewish leader. He's also called... Philo the Pythagorean. So here's a Jew who's a Pythagorean. Pythagoras is the Buddha of the West, Western world, I've heard him called. I think that's a good name for him. That's his status, really. And this group, the Therapeuti, look like they're practicing, uh, they're practicing um, uh, Pythagoreans, but they're Jews. And they seem to be practicing a mystery school based around Exodus. Now, as I'm going to go into in a minute, these, are, these myths are not just stories. They're initiation allegories. They're parables with very, very deep messages. So they understood <clears throat> that 
the reason we call them the Gnostics is because they regard the aim of all of this as gnosis, Greek for knowledge, and it's mystical knowledge. It's knowledge of the self or knowledge of God. That's what it's all about for them, an experience of gnosis. In the mysteries of Moses, it looks like they understand Exodus as an allegory for that process, whereby you're lost in the desert with Moses. Moses is the initiator. He leads you and you end up eventually in the promised land and the promised land represents Gnosis. And they've got all sorts of understandings of what that means. But what's interesting about that, if you remember your Old Testament, is that Moses dies. It's not Moses who leads the Jewish people to the promised land. It's Joshua. And Joshua in Greek uh, becomes Jesus. So that I suspect Jewish Pythagoreans have been practicing the mysteries of Joshua or Jesus possibly for a very long time, way before any imaginary year zero. And they're developing what they're doing is what, what we do today still. They are integrating their own mythology with the mythology of this incredible pagan culture they exist within in, in, in Egypt, which is not just the old, old Egyptian culture. It's also all the Greek culture as well. I mean, this is high culture. They want in, they're taking it in. And what they do is they take Joshua and transform him into the pagan dying and resurrecting God-man and they create what has become for us the Jesus story. <clears throat> One of the things that was outstanding for us uh, with all of this, or really bugged me when we were working on this, was what about Paul? You know, Paul's the earliest writings we have. And he attacks the Gnostics. So if the, if the Gnostics really were the original Christians, that doesn't make any sense. And I just want to point you, if you're interested in that, it's in our books, but I recommend Elaine Pagel's book, The Gnostic Paul. Because when we discovered it, and it was kind of a discovery, it just blew my mind. Because here was Elaine Pagels, who, who, who does fantastic work, <clears throat> saying, oh, yeah, no, no, the Gnostics regarded Paul as the great apostle. He was the man for them. You know, they, they can chase their lineage to him. Some of them do. Valentinus does, for instance, through Thudas to Paul. <clears throat> and the scholars have, of course, other scholars mainstream scholars have for a long time been going, look, there's early letters of Paul, and then there's other letters which are way later, not written by Paul, they've been added later. And those are the ones where you get all of this anti-Gnostic rhetoric, because they're trying to claim Paul as a literalist, transform Paul, because the actual authentic Paul is writing in the Greek of the ancient mysteries, and sounds like he was an initiate of other mystery schools, as well as, as, well as the Jesus mysteries. So I think that's what's happened. And then it's been added to, changed, fallen into the hands of people with political motives. You know, there's a whole, you know, there's a complex history <laughs> that will probably will never un un unweave, um, which has got us to where we are today. And it's still going on, of course. That's what happens with ideas. But what I want to do with the time I've got here is I want to try and share with you why I think this mattered to people. Because... There is something very, very deep in these ancient stories, which is not just to be dismissed, I don't think. It's not like a silly story. It's more than that. It, there's a significance to it, which we can easily miss. So the options 
taking on Christianity, and I call it a little bit of the last conversations. You know, the, the option isn't, it's just stupid, help people get out of it, or you're just in and believe the whole thing. There's actually this, there's lots of options, but this is one, which is to go, actually, there's something deep in here. One of the things we did, which probably <clears throat> led us to, got us into some trouble, really, it, it meant that we weren't embraced by people who might have otherwise done so was that we dedicated the Jesus Mysteries to the Christ in you. Because we didn't want to rubbish Christianity. If anything, I think we wanted to rescue it and go, look, there's something in here of, of real spiritual value, philosophical value. So the key thing with Gnosis, let me just talk about that for a moment, and then we'll look at the myth. <clears throat> the key thing with Gnosis is self-knowledge or knowledge of God. Um, in the, there's a little fragment of, called the Oxyrhynchus manuscript, where Jesus says, "Know yourself." Well, that's the great injunction of the ancient, of the ancient Greek philosophers, isn't it? Gnosticism. It was over Eleusis. Uh, uh, know yourself, not Eleusis. Um, Delphi. Know yourself, and he says, uh, "The kingdom of heaven is within you, and ever, whoever knows himself shall find it." So this is a, this is about an internal inquiry. Who are we? So, <clears throat> very briefly. What, what's happening with, in the ancient world and with the Christians in particular is that they see us as having three aspects to our identity, and I think they are really obvious. So in the Greek, it would be physis, psyche, and pneuma, or nous. That's the body, <coughs> physis, physical. Here it is. You can see that, right? You've got a body. That's no problem. The second one is psyche, psyche. It means soul. And what's that saying? You know, that's been heavily theologized, but let's just cut all the theology away. What that's saying is you are always experiencing two things. You're experiencing your body in the sensory world, and you're experiencing a non-material, what they would call spiritual realm, which is imaginal. You go there in dreams, you go there in spiritual practices, psychedelics, which was probably being used in the pagan mysteries at least. You're experiencing it right now. That's the important thing to get. This is not some woo-woo-woo. This is going, look at your actual reality. You're experiencing the body and the world senses. You're experiencing the soul. You have a soul. There's no doubt about it. You would not understand the meaning of these funny sounds I'm making if you didn't. That's what they're referring to. Now, for them, and we may see this differently now, and this is a whole debate which I'm not going to get into, but for them, you're experiencing a non-material dimension. Which is why they think when the body dies, you can continue to live in the non-material dimension, because you're already experiencing it. It's not way out. And it's not theologically complex in essence. It's about what you're actually experiencing as a human being. And then there's this third element, <clears throat> spirit. Spirit, which is really your essence, essay, to be. It's your being. It's going behind all of that. <clears throat> there is what you are. So one of the ways that they would work with this would be to say, in this manuscript where they, pretty much, they say this, <clears throat> um, if you're con conscious of it, you're experiencing the world of the body, you're experiencing the dimension of the psyche but what is the you that's experiencing all of that that's your being 
um, it, it, it's called a knowing principle in some texts. There's a, there's a fa the fabulous <coughs> um, promise made in the Gospel of Thomas, Gnostic Gospel. Well, they're all Gnostic Gospels, actually. That's the whole point. They're all Gnostic Gospels. There are only Gnostic Gospels. Where <coughs> Jesus, this figure of Jesus, is made to say, I will reveal to you what no eye can see, what no ear can hear, what no hand can touch, and what cannot be conceived by the psyche, by the mind. And it sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? What that would be, and would it be remotely useful? What that's pointing to is spirit. And what you have here is a perennial mystical teaching that you will find throughout the Western mystic traditions and in the East, just the same, which is your essential nature, your being has no form because it is what is witnessing all the form. It is witnessing the forms in the world. It is witnessing the forms in the psyche, but it has no form. It simply is. It is just pure being. So your pure being, for, the, for them, the, 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 the numa or nous, as far as I can see, is not much difference to what in the East gets called the Atman or the Buddha nature. A formless presence of being that is your essential identity. And once you get that, the deep mystical gnosis is realizing that your deep being is the deep being of everything. There is one deep being, and that's God. Paul <coughs> says that the whole thing that he's writing about, you know, he never gives you any historical facts. He just says it's about dying and resurrecting with Jesus and discovering with him, not believing in it, but with him, you die and resurrect with him. We'll come to that in a minute. <clears throat> he says it's about finding the Christ within. And if you go back to the pagan mysteries, you hear about the Dionysus within or the Osiris within. That's your spirit or being. That's this same idea that when you, when you know yourself, you know God, as Clement of Alexandria said. You know yourself, you know God, because you discover that you are this formless presence where you have no form, so there's no limit to you. There's a limit to your body, there's a limit to your psyche, but your essential identity has no form. So that all of this is not some trivial story. It's about getting you to see this. Now, you may think that that itself is some sort of mental health issue, and I think that's a defensible position. I don't hold it. But if you do, I respect that. But at least I think it's important. I don't know how anyone can attempt to understand the origins of Christianity without <coughs> understanding this and ideally without experiencing what it is they're talking about. Because when you do, it's an actual experience. So that you then see what's mo motivating the whole thing, where it's coming from, essentially. And then Paul's message is, look, we are all the bodies of Christ. We are all part of this one body because it's all one. And, and by recognizing the Christ within, you, you become part of the one body. That's what the mission is. 
And to get people there, they have these levels of initiation. So people start as what they call hillix, <clears throat> highly as matter. So you're a materialist, you think you're your body, that's it. And then you become initiated, the outer mysteries, the first step, and you become a psychic, not psychic like we mean it today, but somebody who's on the soul level of understanding. You've discovered, I'm not just this, I'm this. All of us today think we're this. Actually, we think we're the, we're the psyche. And then there's another step, which is the inner mysteries, which is the revelation of, uh, it's called the pneumatic initiation, pneuma, spirit, the spiritual initiation, which is the recognition of the Christ within, spirit, and uh, the oneness with God. And you see the same things if you go back into the pagan religions, uh, the different levels, exactly the same. And there's many, many different names that were given to these different levels by the different groups, but you see the same structure. Now, what the hell has all of that got to do with the Jesus story? Time is part shooting past, and I want to just root this in the story. And ideally, if I have time, I'd like to root it also in the myth of Sophia, the Christian goddess, because we can't really understand the myth of Jesus without seeing that for the original Christians, for the Gnostics, it worked alongside the myth of Sophia, which they had also inherited from the pagan myths of Demeter and Persephone and so on. <clears throat> All of that was lost by the Roman church, of course. So I'm just going to give you a real, real quick uh, dive into why, how it's rooted in the story. So Plotinus, that's, Plotinus is a Neoplatonist. He doesn't like the Gnostics. They, they're competitors. They also, they're, they're, they're playing to the same crowd as him. And, uh, and he's much more philosophical, I think. They're much more mythological. But he says something I really like Plotinus. Um, but he has he has this great line where he says that <clears throat> he, he says that the Christians also teach, like him, the ascent from the cave. So here's someone at the time or early who's telling us what the Christians were teaching. And what they were teaching was the ascent from the cave. Now, I don't know about you, but when I went to Sunday school, no one sat me down and went, right. Let me tell you the story of the ascent from the cave. <laughs> so what the hell does that mean? Here's what I think it means. <clears throat> the Jesus story starts in a cave. We have stable, but it's cave. In some of the Gnostic stories, there's a whole explosion of light in a cave when Jesus gets born. But before the cave, there's a star, isn't there? A really big star. What's that about? Just a bit of color? No. Going back to the ancient Egyptians was this idea that you are really a star. Now, to us, of course, that sounds completely crazy. <laughs> Why would you be a big ball of exploding gas? But they didn't see it like that, of course. What they did is they looked at the night sky and they saw a tapestry of holes through which was pouring the light beyond. And in their understanding, the light beyond is the treasure house of light. It's God. And they, in each one of us is a hole in that tapestry. Think of the Nuit in the ancient Egyptian tradition, 
the goddess. So God is the light beyond, and the goddess is all the forms, everything which has form. That's her. And we are like holes in the veil. And I think they meant that, they understood that very literally. Because when I look in your eyes, I connect with something I cannot see. I can't see your psyche, your soul. But sure as hell, it's there. And then you say something back to me and you reveal it to me. So that we are, each one of us, a hole in the veil through which we connect through. And then the light itself is being. That's the, that's the oneness that we all are. So each one of us is the one light coming through a particular hole. Hello. <laughs> that's the idea. So Jesus is a very big hole. <laughs> He's a very big light. He's the perfect initiate. He's born in the cave. He's born of the virgin mother. That's a, a motif which goes right back uh, into pagan mythology. It's the goddess, uh, her on the left-hand path. She recycles souls who've been, Jesus is going to be on the right hand, isn't he? But she's on the left hand and she's recycling souls through reincarnation into the cave. What's the cave? Well, we know it today as Plato's cave because he's a very famous uh, person who uses the cave. <clears throat> but really it's Pythagoras's cave, I think, and probably back before him to the Egyptians. The cave is the night sky. The universe is the cave. We are stuck in the cave. And we are, we are here being um, confused by all of the forms and not realizing what we really are, which is the, the, the light outside. And if you know Plato's myth of the cave, it's about discovering that. Well, all of these mystery religions are carrying on that tradition. So it's a bit like today, you know, if I said to you, if I told you a story and I went, and then he got his lightsaber and got in touch with the force, I probably wouldn't have to stop and go, you know, like in Star Trek, not Star Trek, Star Wars, you just know that. And in the same way, if I, if I talk about the cave, <laughs> you're bored, it's like, you know, the cave, you know that anyone educated will know what that means, I think. In the same way, it's part of a it's part of a collection of common images. <clears throat> so the story starts with Jesus being born in the cave. He will then go on the initiate's journey, and the big structure of that initiate's journey is going to lead to his baptism, which is the psychic initiation. Literally, it's the cleaning. You're washed clean. That's that's the symbolism of the soul initiation, the, the initiation of the psyche, which is being done to him because he, he himself is the initiate. Uh, but because he's Jesus, uh, down comes the dove of Sophia and comes into him. He is now the lover of Sophia, Philo Sophia. He is a philosopher now. And he will bring his teachings. And he does. <clears throat> the next section, you will have him teaching all of the lessons for the psychic or the psyche level of initiation and they're beautiful you know that's where you get all these teachings about forgiveness about love um that you know there's a lot of stuff which is not so nice thrown in there of course because it's old and because it's been messed about with but there's some real stunning sermon of the mount so on and this is the fundamental message <laughs> there's a message of oneness and it's a message of love because love is how the oneness feels so that's the, the first level, and that will lead him uh, to being anointed, 
I, I'm, how am I doing for time? Uh, I'm, I'm, I may not have time for Sophia, so maybe I'll just gloss over that. The, he's got his 12 disciples. The 12 disciples, this is a nice little quick motif, is, is the 12 signs of the Zodiac, of course. So Jesus is the pole star around which the Zodiac revolves. And the pole star is your own center around which everything in you is revolving. And you're stuck on what Pythagoras called the wheel of grief. We know it better from the Eastern, the wheel of suffering from the Buddha. And you're stuck on the wheel and you're going up and down and up and down and blah, until you discover the still center, which is represented by Jesus. And there's, Gnostic, there's a lovely Gnostic gospel where he literally stands in the center and the disciples circle him and they, and they do a dance and he sings with them. And he puts out a call and they answer back and he goes a call and they answer back. So he goes through all of that and it's all going really, really well. And he comes into Jerusalem. He's been anointed by Mary Magdalene, who represents Sophia, um, who anoints him as the Christ, as the king with oil. And he comes in as the king riding a donkey. Why riding a donkey? Because in the, the mythology, of, especially of Egypt, the, mytho- the donkey is set. It is your animal nature, the devil even. It's the thing you need to conquer. If you know the, the story of the 10 bulls in the Zen tradition, it's the same. It's like you conquer this. So once you've gone through, what is the psyche initiation all about? It's about conquering your animal nature your, your, and setting yourself free to transcend so he's done that he's and they're all all hell the king all hell the king except like you as the initiate that's not the end at all the end is 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 going to be a death and resurrection and that's the uh pneumatic or spiritual um transition which is the death of the self and the rebirth of the self within christ or within the oneness so you're no longer just this individual, you're reborn as a, an expression of the one, of, of Gnosis. So <clears throat> that will lead eventually to the empty cave. So Jesus will die. I'm going to say a little bit very quickly about Sophia. I want to leave time for us to be able to talk together. So we've, we've been talking about the dying and resurrecting son of God here, where God represents the light beyond and the, the, the being of everything. And the son is your being, which is also one with the being of everything, but it's your being. And I said earlier, the, the, the female principle, the goddess, is all of the forms. She's like the dream of life. Every sensation, every thought, every color, we're in her right now. That's, that's what, that's the, the complementary, other, the formless and the form. And in the myths like Persephone and Demeter, Demeter's the mother, Persephone's the daughter. And the daughter falls into the underworld. So, the spirit is the father and the son, and the soul, the psyche, is the mother and the daughter. So there's one soul, which is the form of everything, and then there's your soul, which is your particular form. You're like a little uh, piece of the garment. And you have fallen into the illusion of thinking that's all you are. That's the perennial mystical message, and it's right there in the Gnostics.
You've fallen into thinking that's who you are, and you've ended up in the underworld. Where's the underworld? This is. This is why the Gnostic message is so different. The Gnostic message is not, if you believe this story, you will, not, you will go to heaven when you die. The Gnostic message is, if you understand what this means to you, you can get out of hell now because that's where you are. You're in hell. If you hadn't noticed, you know, that's the message. And you can get out now <laughs> if you understand that really you're this. And so part of what they're doing is that, so in, in, in the, the, there's myths about just Sophia, whole documents. But in the Jesus stories, you can see her represented by the two Marys. So there's the two, the two Sophias, higher and lower Sophia, they're called in some texts. And in the gospel story, you can see Mary the Virgin, who's at the, at the cave where he comes in. She's the, the goddess who recycles souls through reincarnation, God, God, a goddess of justice. And then Mary Magdalene, who we have this tradition of her as the fallen woman. And I think that comes from old myths, which are around Isis. And she is your soul. And in, the, in, the, in, and in the Sophia myth, you're lost, you're abused. You, she looks for love in all the wrong places until she turns around and asks the father for help. And the father sends the son to rescue her. And he does. And in that way that can only happen in mythologies, the, the brother and sister get it on. And it all ends happily ever after. Only in myths, right? Um, so that's the essential the story. And you can see that with, with Mary Magdalene. She is rescued. She's taken seven demons are removed from her. Well, that's today we would understand that mostly there's the seven uh, chakras taken through the seven chakras. But there was also there Mithraism. This is a Western motif as well. And she, she is cleansed, at which point when she is cleansed, she, as the wise soul, anoints Jesus as the Messiah for him to go in and meet his death. And she then becomes the wise soul. She is the apostle to the apostles. So after his death, she will teach the stupid male disciples, who all represent being lost in the seven signs of the zodiac, she will teach them the real teachings in books like the Pistis Sophia, Faith Wisdom. She will then reveal the inner mysteries to them now that he's gone. But at this point, there's a lovely little motif, which I'll just share with you because I, I just find it very moving. So <clears throat> in the gospel of John, except it's not the gospel of John, it's the gospel of the beloved disciple. Take a look. John's been added much later. And he's been turned into a man because in all of the Gnostic gospels, the beloved disciple is Mary Magdalene. She's Jesus's consort. She represents Sophia. I've just got to say, as an aside, my all-time favorite Gnostic quote, just because it always makes me smile, is a fragment we have, tiny little fragment with the words at the end missing, which just goes, Mary, Ma Mary was Jesus's special disciple, and he would often kiss her on the <laughs> and we don't know what the next word was. So anyway, here we have Jesus, the God-man, and the goddess, his consort. 
And there's a really important moment mythologically, I think, in the gospel of the, of the beloved disciple where Jesus is on the cross, if you remember, and before him is his mother, Mary, and the beloved disciple. That's always taken to be John. It's not. It's Mary, I'm pretty sure. And he, when he dies, before he dies, he just says, mother, this is your child. Child, this is your mother. He unites the individual soul with the world soul. The, the anima mundi, so that it's no longer fragment. And when he does that, he then goes, it's finished. When you've united your separateness with the one, it's finished. And he dies. But of course, he doesn't die. He comes back. And Mary Magdalene is the person who will discover that the tomb is empty. He's ascended from the cave, just like Plotinus said. So the wise soul now comes back to the cave and sees it's empty. And Paul says he conquered the cosmos. So there's a little detail to take us back to the beginning of that story with the sky, the night sky, which is, do you remember it, when he dies, the, the tapestry in the temple <clears throat> is rent in two. What was the tapestry in the temple? It was a tapestry of the night sky. It was, it was a, an astrological representation. And it tears in two. Why? Because the, he is parting the veil to the treasure house of light, to the, the dazzling darkness, and conquering the cosmos. Because that's what the allegorical myth, the parable, is about each one of us coming to do. That's its purpose. Now, you may listen to all of that and think that's a lot of nonsense in terms of its great mystical message and um, that, 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 you know, it's just ancient delusion. And maybe that's right. But what I would say is just this. I don't think we can really understand other human beings unless we try at least to put ourselves in their place as best we can. So if we want to understand the people who created this story, and if we want to understand why it reaches down to us still and resonates in the soul, then I think we need to understand the experience they were pointing to and why it moved them so much and why they tried to approach it in all of these different ways. And in terms then of how we look at Christianity today, I think we can do two things at once. We can see how it's got distorted into this thing which has actually played a very beautiful but a very ugly role, both. And we can find in it something of real value so that the modern world doesn't just have to offer to people who've been believers. Listen, you've been taken in. You're just an idiot. Come out. It's actually saying, look, no, no. Actually, what we need to do is we need to go through the process of the, the second initiation. You were never meant to stay just a believer. That's pistis. That's faith. That's the first step. The second step, when you're ready, in the ancient world, was somebody 
the teacher would take you aside and go, okay, right, I'm going to tell you what this means now. What this means is about you. And that's what we lost. And that's why what we've got left can be so, um, so disastrous, really. And just as a, as, a, as, a, as a thought to end on with this part of the presentation, and then we'll hand it over to you, is um, there's a lovely line, one of my favorites again in the Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is laid out upon the world, but people just don't see it. And I think that's it. That's what this is really about. It's about knowing what the hell this is we're in, in a deeper way. And people have been doing that forever. And a particular group of people did it 2,000 years ago and left us this inheritance to try and sort out and work out what they meant. So thank you so much for all your kind attention. And I'm willing to go anywhere with all of that. And there's plenty more we can explore, of course. Tim, thank you so much for this. Um, I'm reading a ton of the comments in the chat box. Everybody, a lot of them, just how inspiring it is. It's very poetic. It's beautiful. Um, it's inspiring. If anybody's interested, check out Tim Freak's website, timfreak.com. This is his This is his bread and butter. This is what he does. Um, and it's wonderful listening to his uh listening to his talks and other things. Um, so with that, though, of course, as you anticipated, I have some pushbacks and I would love to discuss. So real quick, what were some of the major criticisms? What are some of the major criticisms that you have heard, especially with the one public publication, G the Jesus Mysteries? Um, and have any of the criticisms that you have heard helped you refine or revise some of your belief? Well, honestly, Darren, it was, it was a, quite a bit of a disappointment, really. I mean, Peter and I um, uh, weren't working in universities, um, for which I've always been eternally grateful, but it has some downsides. Um, so uh, we, what happened when the Jesus Mysteries came out is a, a flood of uh, letters in those days, <laughs> um, which is still going on, but through email, from Christians who read the book and went, oh my God, you've just set me free. And I'm now reading more than one book. <laughs> and it was very exciting and very beautiful and uh, sometimes often very funny, often very sad because people would often go, yeah, but my, my friends don't talk to me anymore or all of that. Uh, but the academic world was completely silent. So, I mean, we had some big supporters. It was taught in some universities. But overall, all of the people now questioning it has actually come since I've gone, look, I'm not really interested in Jesus anymore. Um, so we didn't go through that at the time. Uh, I, the, the, some of the criticism that I have looked at, I, I just felt like people hadn't read the book um, and that they were criticizing something else. Uh, often it was as if we were hanging everything on one thing, like the amulet or something, which is definitely not true. I mean, to me, it's it's like, I am sure, I mean, I haven't read the book for myself for a very long time. I'm sure I'd write it very differently today. Um, it, it, what we attempted to do with it, um, because I wanted it to reach the culture, not the just the academy, what I tried to do with both of our first two books was to write a popular book inside an academic book. Mm. So the style was very um, 
uh, to try and get the ideas across. We didn't throw in lots of academic names, but every single every single thing we said was backed up by a note. So you could see where we got that from. And some of those sources have been questioned, and I'm fine with that. Um, some of them will be wrong. Uh, we didn't get to check every source, of course. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. I'm sure there'll be many which are not so credible now or even weren't when we, we did, in a way that we didn't fully understand ourselves. It's really the, the mass of the information. So I would say most of the criticisms were about the style, really. And I just let that go, let that come, you know, I'm not worried about that. Well, I'm shocked that uh, academia didn't have more to say in a, in a very direct and um, official Nothing. capacity. Nothing. Nothing at all. Well, no. It was, it was, but, but, you know, it's hard, it's, it's maybe hard to, you know, it's like, this is 20 something years ago. Sure. And this was so on the edge. It was so on the edge. And I would do, you know, we did Radio 4, which is a big, serious radio in, in the UK. And, and we, we, we did a few things with, uh, with academics, um, theologians. And to be honest with you, Darren, I was a little bit worried because, I mean, some of these people were like, the Oxford Dons. And I thought, you know, they've been studying all this all their lives. Uh, but if I'm frank, which maybe I can be, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, the, the level that I was finding in theology was so low. It was shocking. Oh, interesting. Um, so that's, that's all we had. And then going back years later, because I have done a few things, it was interesting. Sometimes with, the, with the, some of the younger people, they'd actually come round to thinking in this way themselves, at least much more anyway. Well, I'd like to maybe help fill some of this gap. Um, yeah. As an historical Jesus researcher myself, uh, I take a completely different approach and different viewpoint. Um, now, it, it, for instance, in one, uh, at the beginning of the presentation, you mentioned the Gnostics talking about that they didn't, uh, you know, Jesus was not in the flesh, the belief that Jesus yeah. was not in the flesh. Now, this has been commonly interpreted to mean not that Jesus didn't ever appear or exist, but that they just didn't think his flesh was real, but that he really was a visible person that you could see and talk to, um, and that he actually had, a, 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 for lack of a better word, a physical effect on the physical environment, but that he himself was just pure spirit. Mm -hmm. You take a different interpretation that it was not the, that the Gnostics didn't even think he was actually here. Is, am I reading you correctly? Well, first of all, as I'm trying, as I'm, as I try to say at the beginning, you know, when we say the Gnostics, we have to be very careful Yes, because course. there are huge numbers of groups over a very long period of time and they are all evolving. They've all got their own thing going and they're all saying something slightly different. So that's not, it's not like a static thing. What I'm trying to suggest <clears throat> is that the origins of this, maybe with a the therapeutic or some such group, which is mimicking and developing a bit like, you know, like it, it, we have these intertestamental texts, which are called the intertestamental texts because they're written between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And in these intertestamental texts, it is clear as day that they combine Jewish mythology with pagan mythology. You can't miss it. But the story we have is, there's the Old Testament, there's these mix-up, and then we get the New Testament, and that's a history. And, and, and all I'm saying is the, is the intertestamental texts and the Gospels are the same. They're all just a, a mix-up. And the, the fundamental understanding there in the inner mysteries, which going right back to the pagan mysteries, is that this story is about you. Now, 
well, like I said, we have to be careful about projecting backwards our understanding of history as against mythology as different things. I don't think it's quite clear like that in the ancient world. But the fundamental idea there is this isn't this is not about believing this story ha happened. It's about understanding that this is that that this is this is an initiatory allegory. So let me address that then. How do you? How do you respond to criticisms that your interpretation or your approach to Christianity in general seems to be a bit new agey? It seems to be, you know, you're transforming the canonical gospels, Christianity, to make it kind of very Eastern and Buddhist and Hindu, and it's just very new agey. And that's not yeah. actually the core of the ancient belief systems. What's I don't think. I don't think it's new agey. I do think I saw it through. Uh, Eastern lens, and I think if I was to write it today, I might choose different language. If those that you might that, that know my work may have realised that when I described it today, when I described spirit, I use the word being, which is a much more Greek word, and 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 in the books I use the word consciousness. That and that's a direct influence there from um, the East, and this idea that there's a kind of a what gets called the perennial philosophy, that there's a a something arrives across the whole world, actually, around the Axel Age, and it takes different forms um, in the East, in the Far East, and in the West. Um, but you can see it's part of human development. And these new, new ideas and new understandings that will come forward as this mystical understanding are arising. Um, so I think that's, that's, why, that's why I think it's useful to interpret the Gnostic Christians' teachings within the Western process and uh, generally you know not to keep them as isolated they are different of course you know if you home in each one of them is different and the teacher is different but if you come out wide enough you can see ah there is a common understanding within which they're disagreeing and that's what i was looking for okay i appreciate i, I also think there's a real there's a real resistance it's like if you're in theology departments when i was going into them which is again a few decades ago now um, there was two types of thing going on. One was you're a believing Christian, <laughs> and you know, so you're in a you're in a department, but you also believe that someone came back from the dead. So it's like ah, this is not like going into the physics department. This is a different way of thinking. And then there were people who were undermining all of that within historical context. But the idea that you might go, there is something to be taken seriously here. That's when I said I think you know when we dedicated to the Christ in you, we immediately fell through two stools which were about to emerge actually in the culture that you got, you suddenly had the new atheists on the one side, just ah, and then you had all the people defending it on the other side. Ah, and then you had people like us in the middle going, um, well, there might be a third alternative and um, really getting drowned out. And that's what happened also in the theology departments. That, there was no room for that. I, but I think it's actually the secret. That's actually one of the things I, I love, uh, you know, you and, and Robert Price, who will also be presenting tomorrow, uh, have been common is he doesn't want to just toss out theology because he, he actually, even though he's an atheist, still thinks that there's great value in these stories and great value in studying these things. Um, I have just two more questions and I know uh, and then I'm going to open it up. So uh, and I know people are eager to get uh, to other um, uh, to ask their own questions. Let me just briefly ask these. Uh, so what strikes me for me as an historian is uh, to say that the earliest or the original Christians were on a, 
uh, a bit of a Gnostic trend, if you will, um, is hard for me because the earliest traditions, the earliest Christian traditions that we have and can verify are not the Pauline epistles, but the creedal, the small creedal form, formulas embedded in some of Paul's letters, for instance, in Ephesians and Galatians, where he's directly quoting an actual, uh, actual creeds that were being spoken and spread of. And when we study and dissect these creeds, it very much is a, an historical, physical person, you know, that Christ lived and died and was raised three days later. Um, so why then, help me understand why then. Well, 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 I think you've just, you've just, you've just, I mean, I would say, I would suggest, Aaron, that what you've just done there, I mean, firstly, you may be right, of course. Secondly, you might have just put in your, your you've presupposed the very thing that's in question. So, you know, if you took any of these myths, you would say, you could say, well, it says here that this happened, but yeah, but they're myths. And that's the key is that, and, and there would be, and I, I'm sure the ancient world was full of people who literally believed in Horus and, and uh, Osiris and Dionysus and Serapis and to it all completely literally and wouldn't even know how not to, but they were also initiatory paths whereby you could see you could be then become a philosopher. You could then actually get the wisdom behind them. That's all it's saying. So it doesn't surprise me at all what you're saying. It feels like, yeah, of course. So you're saying the the ancient formulas about Jesus living, dying. Are, are the same as the ancient formulas about Mithras or any of them. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then last question is, um, it seems when we look at the stratification in the Gospels, there's definitely some revisions and editorial work. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind immediately is Jesus's birthplace, right? Um, and this was kind of talked about already uh, in a couple presentations ago a little bit, but the idea that uh, most critical scholars agree that Jesus was born, if he was an historical person, was born in Nazareth in the north not in bethlehem like the christmas story says but later uh gospel writers added the bethlehem story so that he would fit with what was considered messianic prophecy yep. it seems to me that if you're going to go to the tr if jesus was just made up if he wasn't even an historical character then why did they need to correct things that were out of touch do you have any uh, thoughts on yeah that? because because you know there are lots and lots of I mean, these are being altered by lots of people i think the mere fact that we've got the three gospels which are similar but changed shows it was okay to do that one of the complaints um, i'm trying to remember who it was i think it might have been tertullian of, of the he levels at the gnostics is they all make up their own myth in fact he says you're not regard it as initiated unless you have created your own myth so no wonder we have so many gnostic bits and pieces hanging around that's just the ones that have survived so i think what's happening is it's being changed being changed by different people with different agendas um over the ages and bit by bit they're it's all jumbled up into the form that we've ended up in but you know i'm, I'm finding out who did what when uh you know I, I think there's good reasons to think that the original um, Jesus stuff was merely a sayings that, that all of the stories been added later. A lot of the geography seems to be wrong. Uh, things like the Nazareth, it was there a Nazareth. We talk about a Nazarene, you know, there's, there's like so many things to pick over. This is why there's a whole industry doing it because, you know, we, it's just, there's, it, it's a long period. It, once you've got rid of the idea of there being a man, these can go back further 
Um, and each group is doing it differently because, as you know, the Gnostics are not all the same by any stretch. So they're going to have different versions of this, which they're playing into. And then, of course, eventually, it is, one of the one of the strands is going to take all of this literally and start and start this new idea that 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 an actual man has come and lived out the myth, which is what you're then going to hear coming up in Rome, and it's, that's what's going to turn into into the Roman church. Okay. Um, I want to turn it over to Dr. Richard Carrier. I know he has several important questions he wants to ask you. So uh, Dr. Carrier, feel free to unmute yourself. Oh, hi. Thanks. Yeah. No, I just got one question really. Um, and I have to say, I, I much prefer this presentation today than uh, the Jesus mysteries itself, uh, <laughs> because you're much more openly speculative and clear in the difference between what you're proposing as a possibility and what is an established fact. And I think, and you're doing a plausible analysis of the non-canonical Christianities, I think, in, in a sense. Um, but my, my interest actually is less in that. My interest is more in the actual hard history of Christianity and the origins of Christianity. Uh, and much earlier on in your presentation today, you related a story about Christianity being invented in Alexandria uh, before the time of Philo, perhaps originating from the Therapeutae. Um, I find that Improbable, but plausible, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, one can make the same argument from the Qumran library, which is even more clearly pre-Christian sect in Judea. So Christianity could have been invented there instead, right? So there's like different ways that you could uh, articulate the evidence and infer from the evidence. Yep. So Paul never mentions any base in Egypt and all the original founders he says are in Judea, for example. So mm -hmm. my question is, do you mean your Alexandrian invention story as just a speculative possibility or as mm -hmm. something you can prove as probable? I, I mean, it's purely as a speculative probability. And I'm sure the tone that you're hearing is just an older, slightly wiser, I hope, human <laughs> being um, and, and not somebody who was in the full flush of, oh, my God, look at all this. This is unbelievable. Right. That which makes is, total sense. Which was, uh, which was happening 20, whatever it was, years ago. Um, and, I jump and, in super and, 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 and you're right. I just want to point out that one of uh, when Paul's complaining about all the different rival preachers he has and all as Christ been divided. One of them is Ap uh, Apollos of uh, Alexandria. Um, yeah, thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, and, and I mean, the only, I think the, 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 for me, it is more like, look, what's the overall most plausible narrative we can put together? And then it's going to be thrown in with all these different currents because we're talking about something developing over, like I said, over a long period um, with people with different agendas and different attitudes and, and, and they're all feeding into it at different places. Lots will be been lost. Some of it won't be. It's quite possible, for instance, that both the sources you mentioned, Richard, could have both been involved. You know, they might both have been practicing something to do with the mysteries of Joshua, which would then come out. I think the key idea, which I'm still very enamored by, is that uh, there's a kind of healing of the Western tradition, that there's not like the pagan world and then, bing, something completely from nowhere arrives in 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 Judea and you know either literally so God gets born there or somebody does and, and something happens rather going look even if you go back into the history of Judea it's full of pagan temples and this is this is one Mediterranean Hellenic culture and so the likelihood is that this would be part of it and and that's where it feels like you know if if we if we'd lived in a world where 
the Gospels had all been lost, like the Nagamadi Library. And I was coming on here going, hey, guys, we found this library and it's got four books called the Gospels in and they tell this story. I think everyone would just go, yeah, it's a myth. That's interesting. Um, uh, but we don't because of the quirks of history. Interesting. What else? Uh, there's been a lot in the chat box and I would not be able to pick out. So uh, please, if you've asked questions or made comments in the chat box, uh, unmute yourself and ask away. So I know you, uh, you've been out of it for a while, but there's a lot of discussion about Galatians 119 and the brother of the Lord reference. Uh, a lot of apologists and uh, people who are debating against the mythicist position, they give a lot of weight to that reference. Um, the, the pitch from this side of things, um, and there are, there are people better able than I to speak to it, is that Brother of the Lord was a, a title of fictive kinship, um, kind of a mark of progression in the mysteries. And with all of your talk about the mystery cults and what we know about them, what we can know about them, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, only to agree with you, Michael. I think that's, that's, that's very likely. And that's why with all of this, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm reiterating myself, but I mean, so I, I think that's right. I, I would think that. Michael, that it's, it's an honorary title. I also think that there's a whole thing that what it's referring to, if it's referring to the Christ, the Christ, then there's a there's often a kind of a relationship of twinship between the individual and the, the, the oneness of the Christ. So that the, the that like the, 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 that comes up elsewhere in the, in the Gnostic text. So it could be that my overall thing with all of this is if you home in on any one thing, it, it, it needs to be utterly convincing because, and there's nothing, there's nothing which is utterly convincing one way or the other. So what that means is you need to come out and look at what's plausible taking in as much as you can. So for me, the one option, there's God and he's a bit strange and he created Adam and Eve and then he had to set it all right through Jesus, and that really happened. That's one option. For me, that doesn't seem plausible. So I'm looking for other things which are plausible. And then the other thing, there's a teacher and things are put on top of him. That's plausible. That's perfectly plausible. Um, but this one seems more plausible, given the nature of the way we treat all the other Mithras, Serapis, all the other guys. So it just feels like, yeah, that, 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 that seems a lot more plausible. Um, but at the end of the day, what we've done either way is even if there was a person underneath there, and I, I can't see why you'd think there was, but if there was, then you're still mainly dealing with a myth. That's the interesting bit, is the myth. Or that's the bit that's had the big impact on the world. It's the myth. And that's the bit we need to understand. Tim, I'd like to piggyback on Michael's comment, uh, his question, because you had brought up the ancient text of um, where it says Jesus loved to kiss Mary, and we presume maybe on the lips or something. <laughs> Why do we presume that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can imagine. Okay, anyway, um, but I'm, what I'm curious, though, is why is that not also kind of evidence that the ancient people did believe in a historical person? Was okay, so Darren, there's a key jump that has to be made. If every reference, which, you know, it's like, it's, to me, from where, that's like going, but look, in this play, Hamlet walks into the room. 
He must exist. He and then he says this. What are you saying? That didn't happen. Look, why would they even say? Well, they're saying that because that's the story. <laughs> so clearly, there's a story, and it's about a man. That's for sure. And they're constantly referencing a man. There's no doubt about that. The same way, if you read the plays of uh, Euripides, you know, you will find Dionysus is like a man. Now, whether that's because he really thought he was a man, I doubt. And the same with this. Very good response. Okay. That helps me. Anything else, guys? We have about five minutes left. I'm okay if we kind of bunch right up on the border here. Uh, but anybody else have a question or comment? Um, if uh, nobody minds me interjecting, I was curious about um, the methods used by the early Christian cult about uh, having religious experiences. Mm. And how those methods are still being used today, if we've made any changes to them, if we've discarded any of them, anything like that? Yeah, they seem to be very different. There's, there's groups that talk about um, really dancing in ecstasy to flutes and cymbals, um, which sounds quite fun. Um, there's one of the texts which I really like is the, it's called The Stranger, Halogenes, that uh, there the goddess teaches um, the initiate uh, and, and gives this advice, which I think is really interesting, where it goes, to, to, to know the unknowable one, which is the oneness of all things, you need to retreat to the rear of your experience. And I think that's a very interesting idea you'll find in a lot of mystical traditions, that kind of you take your attention and you come out um, of your experience and, you, and you're aware of yourself as witness or the experiencer. So there's all sorts of things like that, which they're doing. And I think it really does depend on, on, which, on, which, on which group. And, 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 and a lot of those are carried on, you know, in different forms. You know, the Quakers have refound some of it. You've got the Cathars and the Bogomils and all of these different groups. And, and, and they're all kind of mixed. That's the great thing for me is like they're all the bits of them I really find attractive. Other bits you just think that just sounds completely crazy. And the Gnostic Gospels generally are like that. You know, some of them you just think, wow, you know, that's the key, I think. The key thing is to understand it and to keep the best because... You know, I mentioned Hamlet. There's some great lines in Hamlet. But is there a line that's ever been written that can match love your enemies? I mean, wow. I mean, what a line. What an idea. Somebody had that idea and wrote that down. Love your enemies. Wow. No wonder it's still resonating down through the centuries. You know, that forgiveness, 70 by 7. You know, if someone takes you... One thing, give them everything. You know, these are huge ideas, massive ideas, way, way ahead of their time and still ahead of their time, in the middle of a whole load of ancient stuff that we should really leave behind. And somehow it's like, you know, in culture generally, we've got to pull out the bits that are of value. I think Christopher Hitchens might disagree with that one, but I appreciate well, the... What, 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 that they're not beautiful ideas? I think they're lovely ideas. I mean, Oh, in the sense of uh, loving your enemies rather than opposing them, but of course there's, there's a lot of nuance with the word well, love. Well, one would like to think you could, might be able to do both. Hmm. One of the things someone yeah, said, let me, let me just maybe just say a couple of things which are... Uh, one of the things which I caught the end of the last conversation where people were talking about, how do you tell Christians? How do you get them out of their thing? And of course, I've, I've done a lot of that. And... When I was especially in the States, when the book first came out, it was quite dramatic. And um, Peter, my, my co-author, he called me the Christian hugger because my approach was to start off by just going, 
Well, look, here's something we can both agree about first. We both think it's important to love our enemies. So let's start with a hug, because that's where we agree. And then we could just talk about the differences and see where we end up. And I think that is the key. I think it's a very Gnostic approach, actually. And I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I urge that. And I think it's also, it's good to find the value. What is it, the value that, that people are saying? There's a bit in, in one of our books where we said, look, people hold on to this because they think without it, they will drown. And the message for us is you won't drown. There's something really good that can support you here. And when you let go of the historical Jesus, you, you don't drown. So last thing, uh, just so you're clear, in case any of this is resonating with you and you want to check it out, um, given my agreement, I'm sure, with Richard's comments about the Jesus mysteries, it's 20-something years old, I still think it's probably got some things of value in there. I certainly seem to get messages every day from people that read it, so hopefully there is. I haven't read it for a long time. But that is the book where we deal with this history, this narrative. Start. It's an attempt to try and put together a, a, an understanding of Christianity as a mystery religion, the Jesus mysteries, pulling on the whole of the ancient culture, Hellenic and uh, Judaic. The next book after that is the one I've also been talking a lot about tonight, tonight which is um, called Jesus and the Goddess or Jesus and the Lost Goddess in, the, in America, The Secret Teachings of the Original Christians. And that's really looking at if this is a myth, if, if this is right, if it's a parable, if it's an allegory, what does it mean? And it's an attempt, again, to put it in the context of the ancient world and uh, to try and see what it's about and see what the experience it's pointing to is. Uh, and then the, the, the third book, really, um, by that time, we'd written a bestseller and uh, I, I'd had enough of Jesus and went to my publishers and went, I, I, what I'm interested in now is how can we understand the gnosis today? And that's what I want to write about. And they went, no, uh, you've got to write another book on Jesus. Uh, and so after much argy-bargy, um, we came down to, I could write any book I liked as long as it had Jesus in the title. And so we write the book called The, Jesus, the Laughing Jesus, um, which is really a book about religion and why we need to leave it behind and the essence of Gnosticism and why there's something still valuable there to keep going with. Now we can understand it today. And then finally, my favourite and I hope at least one person might go out and read this one. Um, some years later, having left the whole thing behind, I had an idea which was so sweet I couldn't resist it, which was not to write a book about the Gnostics, but to do what the Gnostics did and write our own gospel. So Peter and I wrote our own gospel, uh, the gospel of the second coming, in which Jesus comes back to explain to his disciples that he doesn't really exist, and neither do they, and hopefully that through this, the reader can understand that they don't exist in the way they think they do either, and that everything exists in this one imagination. Uh, with lots of jokes. And my personally, I think my greatest triumph that I'll be most proud of on my deathbed is that for a short while on the London Underground, the Metro, there were some big orange posters with the book that said, Jesus is back and this time he's funny. And uh, so it's all the serious stuff that I've been talking about today, just with a lot of jokes. And my favorite, just to end with, my favorite all-time review uh, was for that book on Amazon. And it just said, freaking Gandhi commit academic suicide. And I think that a truer word was never spoken. <laughs> and 
<laughs> thank you so much for this. Um, okay, that's it for our time, everyone. Thank you for everybody participating in the comments and then the discussion. This was wonderful. I want to say thank you again for everybody coming out. We have about five more presentations, five or six more today. Uh, the next one starts in 30 minutes at the top of the hour. So I hope I'll see you come back. And uh, Mr. Freak, I will let you have the last word. Uh, thank you for uh, listening to what I had to say. Um, and thank you, Darren, for inviting me and for putting on this conference. And uh, I hope that we can work to, together to rescue what is good in this and leave behind what is bad. And that's why this matters to do that. Go well and enjoy the rest of the conference. <laughs>